Uh, good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're grateful that you're with us. We don't believe you're here by accident. And uh, before we get into the message, I want to talk about Christmas. Think about Christmas yet? Uh, we are not. And, um, but maybe this will get you in the mood. We are talking about uh, Operation Christmas Child is coming up, and uh, your kids are going to be walking home. If you have kids, they're going to be walking home, walking out of Sun Chasers with a little uh, more details about Operation Christmas Child. But we kicked this off. We've been doing this for several years. We kicked it off in the summer uh, during VBS, and the, ch- and the kids brought different items that would eventually go into shoeboxes, and it was fun to see the kids get excited about uh, making an impact with uh, kids globally. And we're going to change things up a little bit this, this year about how we've done things in the past. We're going to ask you, to, instead of packing shoeboxes and bringing them from your house, we're in- instead going to ask you to bring items so that we can pack shoeboxes here and, and be able to send out lots of, uh, of shoeboxes, who knows how many, but we're praying that more than last year, basically. And so over the next, between here and November 10th, we will be collecting uh, items for those shoeboxes. Like I said, your kids will walk home with details. Uh, if you don't have kids, it's going to be on the website this week. We'll put out uh, details on it. And then on November 17th, Sun Chasers will be packing those shoeboxes together. So it'll be fun to see, have them, you know, uh, being able to make an impact globally. Our vision talks about um, being driven to reach people. And this is one very simple way that we are driven to reach people as a church. So if you have questions at all, you can talk to uh, Norman Ward, Erica Lehman, or uh, Melissa Peterson, who are kind of coordinating this year's Operation Shoebox Drive. So thanks for doing your part, Crosspoint, and let me pray, and we will get into the message. Father God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for uh, the call that you have in our lives to worship you. And I pray that your uh, word would speak today. Uh, I pray that you would uh, use my words, that you would just, uh, that I would decrease, you would increase, and you would uh, be elevated up uh, in this service and in our individual lives and in this church as a result of uh, your word being preached today. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your uh, incredible love for us. We thank you that Jesus bridges the gap for our sin. And I pray that that truth would be, um, become very real uh, to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible in front of you, turn to the book of Colossians. We'll be in chapter 1 today. Uh, if you don't own a good Bible or just own the uh, big coffee table version with the naked baby angel on it, uh, it's kind of difficult to carry around. I'd encourage you to get a new one at Guest Connections and call that your own. In there, there's some encouragement about uh, where to start and, and where to read and some encouragement for, for us as you get into the adventure of reading God's Word. So I encourage you to get one at Guest Connections. Pick up a free one after the service. We're in week four of our series called First, which is a series through the book of Colossians. We're asking ourselves throughout the series, and I pray we're asking this of one another in our community groups or in our uh, friendship circles, in our homes. We're asking, is Jesus first in everything in your life? Uh, Is he first in your public life? Is he first in your private life? Is he first in your uh, thought life, your home life, your life at school, your life at home? Um, And ultimately, I pray that we're uh, asking this to Jesus in prayer, saying, Jesus, examine my heart. Where are you first and where are you not? Where are you my first love and, and what has maybe taken the place of you being our first love? And just asking that to Jesus in prayer. If you missed a week along uh, this series so far, so far, I'd encourage you to listen online to, because each message kind of builds on one another. You get an overall storyline of the book of Colossians, this letter that Paul's writing to the Colossian church. And the overall story or theme is really elevating Jesus to this church reminding them of the priority that Jesus demands in all of life. And I believe this could not be more timely for us here at Crosspoint. In order for today's 
uh, verses to make sense, we need to back up a little bit. Uh, like when you read a book, you don't just open to the middle and just begin reading because if you do, you miss the setup. You miss the, uh, the, the setting where the story is taking place. You miss the characters and the background of them. You miss the conflict that those characters walk through and then you miss the resolution to that conflict and how that conflict gets resolved. And the stories I love are the stories with heroes. Maybe it's just a little boy in me, but I just love stories that, uh, that, that have a hero. They capture my attention. It could be sports-related, war-related, uh, something in history, a dad maybe who steps up to protect and lead his family, or the student who's willing to do hard things and walk with some courage and be heroic. Well, today, we get another story of a hero. And I know this may come as a shock, but the hero in today's story is Jesus. I like I said, I know this is a surprising answer being in church and all with Jesus being the hero, but this is ultimately the story of Scripture. Um, and if you, right, right now, if, if you check out on me, if, if you, uh, right now, you're beginning to think about what's for lunch or when's this guy done or how bad or her, how good your fantasy football team is or what your agenda for this week or how, any of that, if you check out on me, before you do, I want you to catch this. Jesus is the hero. He's the hero. You need to walk away with this truth. This is what we're going to look at today. But if you check out, just before you do, listen to this truth that Jesus is the hero. The whole story of the Bible has a hero, and it's not Moses, it's not Mary, it's not Paul, it's not, none of those people, it's Jesus. And for those of you here who know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray you'd be reminded of that truth today. And for those of you here who don't know Jesus yet and you're seeking out who he is, and maybe you're not even seeking, but after today you're going to realize that what God has done for you through Christ, I pray that today you'd be reminded that Jesus is your hero. Not just the hero of, the, uh, of your neighbor or the hero of someone else's life, but he can be the hero of your life. But to understand why Jesus is the hero, then we need to back up to chapter 1 in the story. And the story begins in creation. This is what last week reminded us of. Last week we looked at verses 15 through 18 in Colossians 1 and, and, and some, of those some of those verses whispered back to the truth found in Genesis 1 and 2 which is the creation story. In verses 15 through 18 we read last week of some of the loftiest language in all of scripture describing Jesus. That he is first in creation. That he has always existed. He is first to experience the resurrection. He is first and head over the worldwide church. He is supreme or preeminent in everything. Creation happens and Jesus, the creator, is Lord over all of it. He's the one calling the shots. He's the one that's designed it all. And as a result, he's the Lord over all of it. God tells us in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Creator God is jealous like you can't imagine for my affection, for your affection, for your love. So God is saying, listen, don't put anything or anyone before me. Worship me first. Don't worship any false God. But then you hear in Colossians and all over the New Testament, the Father saying, worship Jesus, worship Jesus. God has exalted Jesus, made him worthy of our worship. It's yet another evidence that we see that Jesus was God. Because in the same storyline of Scripture, in Genesis to Revelation, God is saying, listen, no other gods but me, but worship Jesus because Jesus is God. Verses like the ones from last week won't allow us to put Jesus up as another prophet or another, uh, just a historical figure or a good man or a good teacher. Instead, they will demand that we say that he is God, that he always has been, always will be, 
who came in the flesh to dwell among us. So creation happens. Jesus is not uh, created, but he is creator. He is eternal, outstanding, beyond compare. He is all that, and as a result, we've been designed by him to worship such a great God. This is one truth we see in those verses from last week, 15 through 18. In creation, everything was good, perfect, beautiful. Jesus was in his rightful place, uh, a first and supreme in humanity's heart. And as a result, all of creation was in this perfect, perfect harmony. Growing up, my sister and some friends of mine got me interested in a cappella music. In high school, I sang, sang in some uh, a cappella quartets. Don't use this against me, this knowledge, right? This just stays right here. But I, I sang bass, and uh, but somehow over the last 15 years, I've gone like through this reverse puberty, and I can't hit any of those notes anymore, and I don't, I'm not sure what's happening to me. But uh, one place we loved to sing was uh, in bathrooms or stairwells. And if you sang or you did sing uh, or, or you currently sing, you get that. Other, others of you, if you don't, you just think I'm weird. But the acoustics are better in there. But when singing is in perfect harmony, it really is beautiful. Everybody's doing their part. There's this perfect blend where all you really hear is one voice. You may not even be sure who's singing what part and what part of the song because their perfect harmony is there. So it was in creation. Perfect harmony. All the notes in creation blending together with one objective, to worship the Creator. And not just singing here, but in all of life, creation declaring the praises of how great our God is. And I'd like to say that all our quartets were awesome and all our performances were awesome. They brought tears to the ladies in the nursing home or caused the high school ladies to swoon with our smooth, smooth vocals. But, um, or that I always nail my part, but none of that would be the case. Sometimes the vocals, the harmony, the singing was not in harmony. It, was, um, it could just be one or two guys that were off, but as a result, it threw it all off. That one voice, so to speak, that was intent on reflecting one, one objective, that one voice was not in harmony. It was broken. And here's what we know about the story that began in Genesis. The world did not stay good and perfect and beautiful. We know that it did not stay in perfect harmony. Genesis 3 happened. The fall of man occurred and sin into the world. But here's the thing. Even if you don't believe Genesis 3, even if you don't believe the creation story, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I mean, here's the thing. Even if you don't, you realize and you see the brokenness of humanity that is around us. You watch the news for like 42 seconds and you're aware of the brokenness of humanity. A few weeks ago, Heather and I were watching the local news and the entire first segment was nothing but murder and crime and injustice, right? So the harmony of that perfect creation was broken in Genesis 3. If you go to any bookstore, whether online or a physical bricks and mortar type of store, the largest section in that book is what? It's self-help. So it doesn't take long to realize that there's something broken about human beings, something fractured, and we're trying to repair that on our own. We're trying to fix that on our own, through our own efforts. And this is where we land today. We land in this tension that exists as a result of sin. We have seen God as holy in many ways. That's what uh, last week was all about. God's word, God's word reminding us of the magnificence of our God, His awesomeness, how as a result He longs for us to worship Him above anything else. And so where we land today in the Bible 
is reminding us of the beauty of reconciliation, the power of reconciliation. When vocals or instruments are off in music, they need to be brought back into harmony. Our lives, our hearts, they need to be brought back into harmony with our Creator. The Greek word for reconcile refers to the act of restoring a relationship to harmony. The purpose of Christ's death on the cross was to bring all things created by Christ for Christ, that was verse 16, all those things back into relationship that is in harmony. And so with all of that, we're finally to the verses we're going to look at this week. Verse 19 in Colossians 1, which is going to again remind us of the divine nature of Jesus. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Nobody worships a God who just can't really do anything. We would never say, hey, have you, have you met my God? I mean, he's kind, but he can't really do anything. We, we would never do that. He, he would never be worthy of our worship if he was that kind of God. We would never want to worship that kind of God if he wasn't all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere in this world, eternal God. Last week in community group, you dove deeper into the phrase or the truth that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This week, you're going to dive deeper into verse 19 that Jesus reflects the attributes of God, attributes of God that we cannot reflect, but his divine nature, his, his immortality, his all-knowing, his all-powerful nature. So once again, if you want to get to know God, we can look at the life of Jesus. Fullness means the totality of God with all his powers and attributes. The totality of God. God in all his fullness has, has chosen to dwell in Christ. Therefore, Jesus can't simply be written off as just another good guy or just some guy, in the, some guy that just roamed the earth or some guy who was historical, but only that he was God in the flesh. There could have been false teachers in the city of Colossae or in the Colossian church who were saying that, that fullness was not found in Jesus, that he wasn't enough, uh, that, that, that something else had to be added to him at the center of life to, in order to find true spiritual fulfillment. But there's no way that's the case since Almighty God chose to, chose to uh, dwell in the fullness of Jesus. I mean, all the totality of God in all his characteristics, all his attributes chose to dwell in the person of Jesus. So he is all that we need. He is sufficient. He is enough. We read in the Gospels, Jesus views himself as God. Other scriptures such as this one in Colossians view him as God. Those who followed him for just three years believed he was God. Even those in his own family who'd been with him for several years believed he was God. His mother, his half-brother James believed he was God. Um, I don't know about your family, but we've been together for 17 and a half years in marriage, over uh, 14 years as parents. No one in my family would claim I was God. I mean, if I, if I went home today and announced to my family, I am God. I mean, it would be L-O-L, R-O-T-F-L, L-M-B-O. I mean, it would just be like, it would be hysterical to them. I mean, ask the staff, ask the elders, ask the friends closest to our family. These are the people that see all the warts, all the hot mess that I am, and all the work that, has, that Jesus has yet to do in my own heart. But here we see the disciples who followed Jesus for three plus years who would then later be killed for their faith in Christ because they knew, they knew, they knew that he was God. He wasn't simply a good man. So we can't get away with thinking that Jesus was anyone but God. 
Listen, if you're saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but you don't believe Jesus is God, then you're not a Christian. If your belief is in, in, rather in just some kind of divine, mysterious, far-off being, and you're hoping that you're, uh, that you're going to please him out of your efforts, but your belief and faith is not in the person and work of Jesus, then you're not a Christian. Then you don't truly know him, and I pray that today you will get to know him. It's all about Jesus. Verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we know from last week in verse 17 that Jesus is holding it all together from the universe, from the, from the furthest reaches of the universe to our lives everywhere in between. And yet even knowing that he's, that he's holding it all together, we see this brokenness as a result of sin. Because of our sin, our rebellion, our pattern of doing life our way instead of God's way, our bent of trying to find our ultimate pleasure in the things of this world, in creation rather than in the creator, all of that sin has led to alienation, separation. The default position of a human is loneliness. Sin's goal is always isolation, always division. The result of sin, the penalty of our sin is death. A holy God can't be in the presence of an unholy people like you and me. And Ephesians 4.18 reminds us that we've been separated from the life of God as a result of our sin. That life is true life. Spiritual life, true, abundant life, eternal life is found only in God, but our sin has separated us from that, from that source of life. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah prophetically said these words in Isaiah 9-6, that a baby or child would be born. And he gives this new child four titles, and you'll have to look it up this week about the other three titles. But one of those titles, he said, this child would be a prince of peace. Now, with that in mind, listen to Ephesians 2, 13 through 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And you should check out the rest of Ephesians 2 this week. But, so what is this barrier, this dividing wall of hostility that's being talked about here? Well, it's sin. It's you and me that we've chosen to go our own way. The cross is the pivotal moment in all history, and verse 20 is making this assumption that something, something has disrupted the lordship of Jesus. Though everything was created through him and for him and by him, all things no longer bear the relationship to their creator that they were intended to have. The harmony has been broken. And they are, therefore, in need of reconciliation. Now, on a side note, but an important one, especially in our culture right now, but verse 20 is not teaching that all will be saved. This is not universal salvation, that somehow God in the end will just call it good and wash, like, ah, oh, it's all right. Had that been, then Jesus didn't have to come. Jesus didn't have to die on a cross. Jesus didn't have to rise again. We didn't need a prince of peace had that been the case. When you interpret the word, you need to look at the whole of Scripture. And it's clear that not all will be saved, that there is a heaven and a hell. And yes, Jesus talked about it significantly. And as a result, it makes the vision of ours to be driven to reach people that much more important. And it makes your response and my response to this good news message, this message about who Jesus is, it makes our response to that have eternal significance. Not just significance in this world, but in eternity. In verse 21, and you 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Now, this is where it gets personal. This is no longer like uh, theory, but this is where it gets personal for you and, you and me, where we have to look at our own hearts and with some honesty. The mindset of those who don't know Jesus is hostile toward the things of God. Another word would be unreceptive. Now, for me, unreceptive puts it in a new light. Because hostile, I can kind of justify my way out of on first glance. I think, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not holding a campaign or like against God or saying God is dead or, or, or we can falsely think that if we just stay on our side of the street and away from God or if we don't drop any bombs with our mouth or just try to live a better than average life or better than that guy on the news or better than that guy who lives down the street, that if we do that, that there's no hostility between us and God. But it's just not true. We were born that way. We were hostile, unreceptive to God at birth. And that leads to a way of life or deeds, as this verse says, a way of life that is contrary or in opposition to how God has designed us to live. We also have to understand that hostility works both ways. This is not just us toward God, but God toward, towards us. Romans 5.10 tells us that we are naturally, we are born enemies of God. We've broken his commands. We've disregarded him. Hostility is the natural contrast to reconciliation. It's the condition that makes reconciliation necessary and possible. Because if there's no hostility between us and God, if there's no hostility toward, in our minds toward God, if there's no wrath from God or demand for justice for sin in the world, then there's no need for reconciliation. Then there's no separation. But we know that there is. Verse 22, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Christ was not an angel or a non-physical being. He had a body. He endured suffering and hardship in that body. And by His wounds we are healed. That's Isaiah 53. I mean, communion is a reminder of that when we take that at the end of this service, that his body was broken. His blood was shed for you and I. And reconciliation is not just that you get along or tolerate one another. Maybe that's how we see it among friends sometimes. Like, like we call it reconciliation, but in reality, it's just us tolerating one another. But that's not biblical rec uh, reconciliation, whether you're talking horizontally with one another or vertically between us and God. One thing we learn in verse 22 is that through reconciliation, the hostility has been completely removed. It's been completely put away. You need to hear this today. For those of you who are in Christ, God is not just tolerating you until you finally get to heaven. He is not going, man, I can't believe I saved that person. They are such a piece of work. Do you realize, do you see the U-Haul worth of junk in their life? Yeah, I just should have, shouldn't have done that. I didn't realize their act was that bad. I didn't realize I had that much work to do. That is not our God. He knew you and me were a piece of work before we met Jesus. And this is why he pursued us, hunted us down, kept wooing our hearts Continue patiently saying, no, don't, don't chase after that. Chase after me. No, no, don't, don't put your faith and trust in that. It's just empty. Put your faith and trust in me because I'm the Prince of Peace. I'm the one who bridges the gap of our sin. Put your faith in me who is the ultimate hero of our life. 
John 15 tells us that you did not choose him, but it reminds us of the truth that we did not choose Jesus. He chose us. And why? Why did he choose us? Because he loves you. He loved you long before the foundations of the world were there, were formed. And listen to me. He's not just tolerating you. He is delighting in you. He is delighting in you. He is singing over you is what Scripture would say. Through Jesus, you are holy, blameless before the judge. This is why it's good news. For those of you here who don't know Jesus, you need to know that Jesus is pursuing you right now. His pursuit of you will never stop. He has never said, nor will he ever say to himself, well, they're just too far gone for me to do anything, for me to save them or for me to restore their life. Remember, he's God. He can do and will do whatever he wants. So your pride and your shame and your guilt, whatever's plaguing you, whatever's keeping you from turning and believing the good news, the cross is bigger. God's love for you is bigger. Our God is bigger. So don't walk out of here. Don't live life under this lie that, that your shame is keeping you from Jesus or, or that, well, I've just done too much or I've said no to him for far too long or whatever it is, it's all a lie. And the truth is, is the gospel. The cross is enough. Jesus is enough. His death was enough. He rose again, so that makes him enough. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Um, we've been seeing this theme throughout this letter so far, that Paul, encouraging the believers to continue in their faith, to keep growing. This is at the heart of verses 9 through 14 in chapter 1 that we're encouraging one another to be praying for right now. And if you're not praying those verses, if you don't have those on your fridge or somehow in front of you, I encourage you to do that. Colossians 1, 9 through 14, you can get on our blog or on our Facebook page. There's an image on, uh, there that you can print off and use these to get in front of you because there's this idea that we're just supposed to continue in our faith, keep growing. Now, don't misunderstand this verse. This is not putting the responsibility of our salvation on us. It has never been, nor will it ever be about us. God is the one doing the work. He is the one choosing us. We continue in the faith. We join God in this lifelong work of transforming and reshaping and renewing us to make us more like Jesus. If you're a parent in here, um, or even if you're not, you've been a part of this type of uh, scenario before, either in the middle of it or as a uh, spectator. But the characters are a mom or a dad or a mom and dad and then a small child. And I'm not talking about a, a, a baby like in a carrier that a pacifier will, will plug that thing up, all right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the three, four, five, six-year-old that can break eardrums. And they can cause people to put DCFS in their cell phone going, what is going on over there? Or heads to turn, security to be called. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Our kids are older, so I'll pray for you who have, still have this situation. But we were there, and the situation goes down where the, some temper tantrum is, is taking place, and the parent is literally like dragging the child outside of the grocery store because they want to avoid any more embarrassment or they're just kind of throwing them over their shoulder like a feed bag, like, all right, why? or they're applying gentle pressure at this point in their shoulder, like, hey, come on, and they're waving to people, hi, hi, Pastor, hi, all right, have you done that? 
it's just part of parenting. This is why we need each other, all right? But that is not the picture of us joining God in his work of transforming us. And sadly, we think it is sometimes. Our Father in heaven is not looking for a family full of children who go kicking and screaming in obedience to him. He is not after begrudging obedience. He is not after fine, whatever. You can drag me out of here, but I'll obey you. He's not after that. This is why all through Scripture it talks about humility. It talks about a contrite or broken spirit. A receptive heart, not an unreceptive heart, but a receptive heart that, that says, Yes, Lord, I will walk in your grace. I will pursue you. I will join you because I know your power is beyond compare and your love for me is beyond measure. And I know that you have my best interests in mind. So even when I doubt or even when I question, even when I'm not sure, even when I don't agree that that would be my way, I'll do it anyways. Because the essence of faith is that my faith is not in myself, but it's in Him. Now, Paul is not expressing doubt here that the Colossian believers will stray. This is not like assuming the wheels are just going to come rolling off the bus and the wagon's going to get broken down. This is not, well, Jesus will do this amazing work of reconciliation only or if you get your act together. Not that at all. Rather, this is, if as I am sure you will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, if as I am sure I know you will. Paul charges the Colossians to continue trusting in Christ, putting the gospel in him first in everything, that they must remember that faith in Christ is not simply a way of entering God's kingdom. It's a way of life within the kingdom. So this is not just about a ticket to heaven, but a life lived for his glory and honor in all things, stable and steadfast, he says. Think building here. Jesus said something in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, a familiar story about wise and foolish builders and, and two types of foundation, rock and sand. And the wise man built his... If you grew up in church, that song is now in your head and you can thank me for it later. But let's be honest because... Let's be honest about that. Sometimes the storm still knocks the house down. Sometimes it all seems like it's gone. Sometimes the spouse still leaves, the loved one still dies, the doctor says it still doesn't look good, the friend still betrays you, the family member still hurts you. One mark of a follower of Jesus is hope. And many of you are living testimonies of that kind of hope, a hope that is an anchor. Even when the physical circumstances, even the physical house is just obliterated, your heart is not. Because your heart is in Christ. Even when the world around you is shaking, your heart is stable and steadfast. Because your heart is not anchored to you, it's anchored in Jesus who is immovable, alpha, the omega, eternal. Many of you are living out verse 23. You're living it out and it's beautiful. Your testimony, your, your hope in Christ is a testimony to the world around you, to your family. In verses 21 and 22, Paul is saying this, once you were alienated and hostile, but now you've been reconciled. You see this throughout the New Testament. You're going to see it later in Colossians even. This is who I was before Jesus, and this is who I am now. Once, but now. So think about this in in our own lives. Once you were in the dark, but now you're in the light. Once you were hostile toward God, but now you've been made holy. 
Just allow some of these truths to soak into your heart. Once you were guilty, but now you're free from accusation. Once you're were, you were out to live for yourself, but now you live for Him. Once you were unholy, unrighteous, down in the pits, but He has lifted you up, and now you're covered in His righteousness, blameless. Once you're out to make a name for yourself, but now you're out to make much of the name of Jesus. Once you were proud, but now you are pursuing humility by the grace of God. Once you thought that this was just about religious, religious ritual, but now you know this is about a relationship lived with Jesus. Once you lived for your pleasure, but now you live for his pleasure. Once you were enemies of God, but now you've been brought near in your friends. Once you were under the wrath of God, but now you've been given the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. Once your hope and joy was based in your circumstances and the weather and how good your week was and how well your team did, and instead now your joy and hope is anchored in Christ. Once you were tossed back and forth, but now your life is eternally anchored to Jesus. Once you were separated, but now you've been joined. Once you were far off, but now you've been brought near. Once you were an orphan, but now you've been adopted. Once you were alienated, but now you've been made family. Once you were lost, but now you've been found. Once you were dead, dead, but now you are alive in Christ. If you don't have a once but now story, and I'm not talking about, well, once Skid Row. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if there was no before Christ, listen to me, you didn't come out of the womb following Jesus. You might have believed there was a God. You might have looked at creation going, yeah, there has to be something divine behind that. But if your faith and trust is not in Jesus Christ, then you're not a Christian. If you don't have this once but now story, my, my encouragement to you is to ask Jesus in prayer, do I know you? And expect him to answer. His question continues to be, will you follow me? And so when we take communion here in a minute, if you don't know Jesus, I ask you to give your life to him completely today. To trust in him completely for your salvation as if you were jumping out of an airplane and your only hope was in Christ and his cross and the resurrection on the third day that he was your reconciler, that, that he was not just the savior of the other person's life or the person or your neighbor or the person down the row from you, but, but he's the savior of your life, that he loved you, that he rose again for you, that he died for you. And so put your trust in him and then follow him as Lord and Savior from this day forward to turn from your way of thinking that, the, well, once I thought that way, once I lived that way, but now... I live this way, by the grace of God, not out of my own effort. But now, this is who I am in Jesus. And if that's your desire, if the Lord is prompting you to give your life to him today, then my encouragement to you during communion is to come on, let's take communion. Let's celebrate together. What a better symbol, what better symbol than to remember that his body was broken for you and I, his blood was shed for you and I. And because of that, my life can be made new. And if you have questions, if you want to pray about that, if you, want to, if you have like wrestling about that, communion, you can come up here and uh, sit in the front row and uh, we can pray about it and we can talk about it even after the service. 
that this is a safe place for you to explore about who Jesus is. As we take communion, I just want you to read, I want to read Romans 5, 5 through 11. It says this, For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for, uh, for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. We have two tables in the back, and at those tables there are two stations there. You don't need to be a member of Crosspoint to take communion. The Bible says you need to be a believer in Jesus Christ to take communion. And so we'll walk outside or walk out the outside aisles and then come back in the center aisle, take a cup of the juice, a piece of the bread, return to your seat. We'll take it together as one body at the end. But then during that time, I just my encouragement to you is to consider the once but now in your own life. Uh, Remember what Jesus has done and use that time to reflect on that beautiful truth, that life-changing truth, that eternity-changing truth. So let's stand up and take communion. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to rescue us, that he is our hero, that he is our reconciler. He is the one who brings us from death to life, from darkness to light, and I I thank you for that incredible life-changing and eternity-changing truth, and I pray that we would walk in that new identity this week. I pray that we would be, we'd rem- be reminded of who we are in Jesus, what Jesus has done for us. And I pray here for the, for the people who don't know you, I pray they would uh, draw near to you this week. I pray that you would continue to pursue them. I thank you that you do, and I thank you that your love is greater, your cross is greater, and that you are more than able to save and restore and reconcile. We love you, Jesus. I pray that you'd be glorified by us and glorified by this church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.